We're about to read from Nehemiah. We're in a series that's called the Leadership Challenge, and it is my opinion that we are in a leadership crisis right now in our country, in our world. There are a multitude of voices. There is a famine of leadership. There's a difference between being a voice and being a leader, and while there are many, many voices, it is my opinion there are very, very few leaders, and I'm praying that some of you are going to rise up and take this mantle of leadership. So Nehemiah chapter 2, if you're ready, say let's do it. Verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine, I gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was much afraid. I'm going to stop there. We'll read more, but let's pray. God help in Jesus' name. Amen. Give someone a high five. Have a seat. If you're watching this somewhere besides Florida, I am preaching from Florida, and there is a certain art to driving in Florida. How many of you have ever been driving in Florida when the weather was nice and blue sunny skies when you left, and all of a sudden there was a torrential downpour of rain that came upon you on the highway? Anyone ever had that happen? I was driving recently, and the rain was so strong. It was cats and dogs and thick. It was like a soup. And so everyone had to go from like 75 or whatever they were driving, and they had to drive lower and slower and, and bring it down, dial it down to like 25, 30 miles an hour because you couldn't see even 30 feet in front of you is how it seemed, which is a dilemma when you're trying to get somewhere with timeliness and you want to get there, which depends on the speed, and you'd see people even pulling off to the side of the road, getting underneath overpasses, because when you cannot see clearly out of your windshield, you are slower, you are vulnerable, and you're in more danger. Tonight we're talking about leadership, and I want to talk about how vital it is in leadership that you can see clearly. Because when you cannot see clearly, the pace of your leadership is going to slow down. You're going to become more vulnerable. And you're going to be in more danger than you would have been. There are few things in leadership more vital than clarity. Good leaders fight for clarity. Good leaders protect clarity. Good leaders reinforce clarity. I need you to understand really one thing tonight, and that one thing I want you to grasp is that a lot of leadership is not effective leadership because it is not clear leadership. Leaders must be clear. Leaders must be clear. We began this series last week in the book of Nehemiah. Of course, Nehemiah is a Jewish man living in another empire ruled by King Artaxerxes. He lives 700 miles away from his homeland, and specifically the city of Jerusalem, and word got brought to him that Jerusalem lied in ruins, which broke his heart. We began last week by saying that leadership begins with a, with a burden, with, with what is it that breaks your heart? What is it that, that God burdens you with? And we found that Nehemiah... His heart burdened. He prayed. And the last verse of chapter 1 was this. It says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Everyone say today. 
Give success to your servant today and grant me mercy in the sight of this man, which was the king. In other words, he was standing before King Artaxerxes and he said, Lord, give me success today. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Give me success today. Now, the reason I'm reading you that verse is because the next verse is chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year, when King Artaxerxes had wine before him, I need you to understand that he prayed, God, give me success today, and yet God does not begin to answer the prayer until four months later. Is anybody encouraged by the fact that sometimes great men of God in the Bible prayed today and nothing happened today? Does that encourage anybody else? How many of you have ever prayed a prayer? Lord, do it now. Move today. Move now. Any of you ever prayed a prayer that didn't come true when you asked it to come true? Here's my question. Why did God not do it today? And I think what we're about to find is that all Nehemiah had a broken heart, I don't think he was yet clear about the problem. And I don't think he was yet clear about the solution. And I don't think he was yet clear about a plan. And I'm going to say it, and I already said it, but I'm going to say it again, that much leadership is not effective leadership because it is not clear leadership. Leaders must be clear. Leaders need to look through the windshield. It doesn't matter if everyone in the back seat can't always see where you're going, but if you're driving and you got your kids, the, the driver better know where we're going. Leaders must be clear. Microchurch leaders must be clear. To which you might be saying, well, I'm not a leader. I just need you to know that we do need you to lead. There is a crisis of leadership in our culture, and more than ever, we need leaders. And I'm just praying that a lot of you that are listening, a lot of you that are watching this video right now, that you are going to embrace the call to leadership. If you're a mom, you're a leader. If you're in a fraternity, you're probably a leader. If you're on a team, you're a leader. If you're going to start a business, you're a leader. If you're an entrepreneur, a manager, a doctor, a teacher, whatever, you are a leader. And leaders must be clear. So let's break this down. First point tonight, if we're going to be great leaders, we're going to have to get clear about the problem. Get clear. It is my opinion that Nehemiah asks for something on one day. It gets answered four months later because it's not yet clear, and it's going to have to become clear. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And the king said to me, Wait, why is your face sad? And, and seeing that you're not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, let's just get real clear. There's a reason that Nehemiah is afraid. It's because he's the cupbearer. The cupbearer does not have a lot of jobs. One of his only jobs is you better be in a good mood all the time because the king's not paying you to be a Debbie Downer. In fact, cupbearers back in the day would get their heads chopped off for less than this. Nehemiah was afraid because you don't, get afraid. you don't get sad in the presence of the king. But Nehemiah is playing a card right now. Nehemiah is going to go and do something right now. Nehemiah is getting in touch with the problem. When he asks him, why is it that you're, why are you so sad? I said to the king in verse 3, let the king live forever. By the way, that is emotional intelligence. Let, let, the, let the first words out of your mouth be something encouraging. King, you the man. Why should my face, though, not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? 
In other words, Nehemiah is being clear about the problem. Step one, leaders must be clear about the problem. What is the problem that your leadership is going to address? What is the problem that your new ministry is going to address? What is the problem that your startup company is going to address? It is my opinion that every business needs to be addressing a certain problem. I'll be honest with you, every time I preach a sermon, if I was training anyone here to become a preacher, here's what I would tell you. Great sermons begin with a why. Every sermon should be addressing a problem. Every sermon should be solving a problem. You are not ready to preach until you can identify the problem. Tonight, the problem I'm addressing in this sermon is a lot of leadership lacks clarity. Leaders must be clear. So what's the problem that this sermon's addressing? Lack of clarity. Every time someone's in a meeting, when I, when I talk to bosses and they say, yeah, we're having, we're having a big powwow tomorrow with all the people in our job, I would say this. Every meeting should probably have some problem that this is. A, I think employers, employees can ask their employer, wait, what, what problem is this meeting addressing? When there's a major decision being made, I think there should be a, a very good question is, what problem is this decision addressing? If you're about to launch a new venture, I think a great question is, what problem are you addressing? There's an organization called Weight Watchers. And you know what problem Weight Watchers addresses? Back from the days of Madagascar, I like them big. I like them chunky. <laughs> Weight Watchers addresses being overweight. Dave Ramsey has a financial uh, organization. Dave Ramsey's organization addresses the pro- What's the problem Dave Ramsey addresses? Anyone know? Debt is dumb. That would be his, his why. His problem is that debt is dumb. Avoid debt. Don't get into debt. Don't, don't go take out student loans to buy more Starbucks when you could have found a way. Debt is dumb is what he would say. You got to get clear about the problem. Martin Luther King Jr. became what we know of, who we know of as Martin Luther King Jr. because he was clear about a problem. What problem did he address? I'll tell you. Because when you read his stuff, it wasn't just oppression. It wasn't just inequities. It was the inequalities that his people were enduring mixed with the way that people were addressing this was something other than what he learned from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and Gandhi when, when he embraced nonviolence. So Martin Luther King was bothered, but the problem he saw was oppression that was addressed with anti-kingdom approaches, which is why he was severely influenced by Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, the nonviolent way of the kingdom of God, um, evidenced by people like Gandhi and others to where he was, his why was we must address oppression and non Nonviolent, peaceful ways. That was his why. Murray Brown is one of our elders. He always sits right back here on Sunday mornings. Murray Brown has been going into the juvenile detention center in Gainesville, Florida for the last 25 years of his life because he is bothered by juvenile delinquents that get put into the juvie and the chances are they're going to end up in prison. And people have written them off And people don't believe in them, and people have no use for them, and a lot of their parents have given up on them, and their culture's given up on them, and their teachers have given up on them. And Murray Brown thinks every single boy needs someone that's going to believe in them. 
25 straight years, he's been going into the juvenile detention center. And they go in there, and they love on the boys. They counsel with the boys. They talk to the boys. They pray with the boys. They, they lead the boys to Jesus. They get the boys filled with the Holy Spirit in the juvenile detention center. For 25 straight years, they make connections with them that when they get out of the juvie, they, they connect to the BOLD program and these other programs where they're going to be resourced with things outside that give them a chance to make it and thrive because Murray has a path. The problem he addresses is a culture that gives up on people. And he says, I'm sorry, my God doesn't give up on people. What problem is your microchurch, your decision, your meeting, your sermon, your Bible study. If you're a microchurch leader, say, tonight we're going to discuss James chapter 3. Well, what problem are you addressing? The problem that we're done with James chapter 2. That's not a good enough problem. There's got to be a reason. Wait, why does James chapter 3 mean? Today we're reading from Song of Solomon. Okay, great. That's a romantic book. Why are you doing that, number one, if you had a bunch of college students? Like, Song of Solomon, please don't read that book until you're on your wedding night. On your wedding night, very motivating. Before that, very tempting. You're like, that's in the Bible? It is. I hope I didn't just make someone stumble. Why? Lord, why do I do such things? You've got to get clear about the pr- godly leadership begins with a clear, but number one, get clear, clear, clear about the problem. Number two, get clear about the solution. I want you to notice that Nehemiah doesn't get a prayer answered for four more months because I would submit to you, it's not just that he wasn't ready. It's not just that God was saying, wait. It's that Nehemiah wasn't yet clear. There are a lot of people that have really good ideas, but they're not yet clear. There's a lot of people with a lot of passion, and someone says, what's the problem you're addressing? And you're like, ah, I, man, I'm just sad about what's going on with, with kids in the inner city. Okay, well, so, so what's the problem? Man, I, wait, wait, what's the, what's the, the problem you're addressing? Is it, is it racism? Is it fatherlessness? Is it, is it the, the public school? Like, what is the problem? Because when you don't know the problem, you probably won't know the solution, and we're going to have a lot more fuzziness and a lot more crashes on this culture called North America as people drive down the street like, man, I don't know what happened. I just kept going 75. And it's like, wait, wait, but the rain is torrential. You got to go get clear. And right now we've got a generation of people are trying to say, we want to go change the world, but we never get clear and we wonder what happened. Number one, get clear about the problem. Number two, get clear about the solution. He says to the king, or the king says to him in verse 4, the king said, well, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 5, and I said to the king that's on earth. By the way, I love that thought progression. I prayed to the God of heaven while I, I, I prayed to the king of heaven while I spoke to the king on earth. You know, a lot of us need to do a little more praying while we're talking to people. Like someone's like, yo, yo, girl, you, you want to go out? That's what I, I had to pray to the bridegroom in heaven before I talked to a potential bridegroom on earth. Lord? Should I even be talking to this guy? I pray when your boss comes up, says, well, what do you request? When a leader comes up, well, what do you request? When Dr. Fox at UF says, well, what do you request? When he comes, the king said to me, what are you requesting? And if he, so I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild it. Now, I just want, I want to get clear here because what he's describing is a vision. In fact, it's not just a general vision. Man, Jerusalem's messed up, jacked up. It's bad. Something needs to happen. 
So what's your vision? Something needs to happen. Okay, that's not clear. Someone needs to do something. That is not clear. This stuff is bad. That is not clear. Someone needs to, to, someone needs to rise up. That is not clear. I'm trying to raise awareness on my social media platform. That is not clear. Missionary Sam, every time he comes, he's like, man, you Americans, you guys love to raise awareness. But at some point, if you want to change the world, you can't just raise awareness. You've actually got to go raise some walls and build. Listen, man, I, I'm, I'm down with raising awareness for sure. Like, we absolutely need to be raising awareness, but at some point, you've got to get clear about the vision. He, he shows up before the king, and the king says, what are you requesting? This is his shark tank moment. You got two minutes, buddy. Yo, what's up, Nehi, Nehemiah? You got two minutes before a king. You got, a, you got three billionaires in front of you right now saying, what are you requesting? What are you going to bring? Now, when you got your two minutes, let me tell you what doesn't work. Ah, mm, man, I don't know. But could you give me some money? Yeah, no, 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 no. What is the vision? Make it clear. Habakkuk says, write the vision, make it plain so other people can run with it. You are not ready to change the world until you are clear about the problem, and you are not ready to change the world until you are clear about a solution. Because at some point, we got to take this and say, I am going to build the wall. I am going to build something. My, my wife, she really likes this show with Chip and Joanna Gaines. I've never watched the show. It's called Fixer Upper. Has anyone seen the show? Oh, wow. Okay. I'm not really into it much, but my wife really is, and here's how the show goes. Some family, some couple wants a house, and so they go and they look for this, you know, some kind of a house that has some kind of potential, and so they will go, and, and when they look, they, they'd never go to a house like, oh my gosh, that's my dream house. I think it always goes, that's totally not my dream house, but if Joanna Gaines gets her hands on this house, something that was not your dream house is going to become your dream house because Joanna Gaines massaged it and did this and did that, and they go in there, and they begin by demolition. They'll go in there, and they're like redoing the kitchen, like, oh my gosh, it's too boxed in. Take this wall out. Take that soffit out. Get that junk out. Get those nasty lights out. Get that you know ceiling fan out. let's put in can lighting and, and and backsplash and all these things that I didn't even I didn't know what a backsplash was until like six months ago all right and they go and they do and, and I got it and, and so it's what they do is they they go and they, and they begin by the demolition there's this demolition and they take it have any of you ever done demolition anyone ever done that is it fun it is seriously fun to get a sledgehammer. You get this, it's like a big old, it's kind of like one of those things at the, at the you know, county fair where you're kind of doing that. You get this sledgehammer, it's like, would you like to take out this wall? It's like, I want to take out this wall. And so you get there, you get that sledgehammer, and you just begin, you're like, ha, ha, and you just, I mean, and you just, it is fun. We need to acknowledge, it is fun to demolish. Now, now here's the thing. Fixer upper doesn't go and make all these millions of dollars that it's made if the show ended with demolition. Now, I want to get super clear. We have got to demolish things. Follow me with where I'm going right now because we are in the age of demolition and deconstruction. And, and last week, I, I sort of referenced this, and I want to get super clear on something. I am not against deconstruction. Repentance that Jesus Christ said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to repent. Repentance is a form of deconstruction. You don't even get into the kingdom without deconstruction. So we, we need not push off on deconstruction. But, but don't miss this. 
when they asked Peter, what do we need to do to, to be right with God? He said, repent and be baptized. What happens when someone gets baptized? They go into that water and they go down where their old self is demolished and then they come up as a fixer-upper. That God takes a shell of a person and he says, you know what? I love you and I care for you and I've given myself for you. But there's things in that kitchen of yours that are not right. And there's parts of your heart that are not right. And there's things with you that are not right. And the parts of you that are not right, they are going to die, which is you're going to go. When you repent and get baptized, what happens is the old you is getting demolished and deconstructed. And then you come up with a resurrection life, which is a reconstruction. What makes Fixer Upper so amazing is that you get, you know, about halfway through the show, I think you're watching, you're like, oh my gosh, how's this ever going to turn out? But what happens is by the end of the show, in the last five minutes, voila, you've, they, they, they show the thing and all of a sudden the woman and the husband are like, oh my gosh, Joanna, you're amazing, right? And they have this whole thing. And now what makes Fixer Upper Fixer Upper is that it doesn't leave you with demolition. It actually brings you to a renovation. What makes Nehemiah Nehemiah is that he's not just identifying the, he's not just clear about the problem, he actually brings a solution. And, and, and folks, this is, the, this is the struggle that we're having right now in our culture, and, and I want to make sure you all understand this, especially any of us that are, that are younger here, I need you to understand, you can actually make quite a living building a YouTube channel, and I need you to see this. You don't need to be clear about any solutions to build a YouTube channel because you can get a tribe to yell, scream, argue, and bemoan the world with you. You can build a platform. In fact, you can write books and even make loads of money with nothing but pointing out the problems. It requires no leadership to do so. But if you want, again, and watch, I'm not against that. I want to get real clear. I am not against the demolition. There is no fixer-upper without demolition. What I'm against is a continuation of wondering, why is our culture not changing more when what we've got is a fixer-upper culture that we stop the show halfway through? And we've got people going and demolishing and taking sledgehammers, but I'm not seeing very many Joanna Gaines rising up with some blueprints to say, not only do we need to demolish this stuff over here, but this is my plan. And this requires work. So what I have right here is, anyone know what this is? No, it's not bourbon, okay? It's, uh, <laughs> someone's like, yes, I'm in the right church. Okay, no. Uh, 100%, this is one of my favorite things in life. 100% maple syrup. Anybody know where this comes from? Where does it come from? It comes from a tree. Guess what kind of a tree this comes from? <laughs> palm, not a palm tree. It comes from, comes from a maple tree, all right? How do you get maple syrup out of a maple tree? Someone's like, well, you just you squeeze it. You do, but watch. You get, <laughs> Zach, who, is, who plays on the worship team, he, he, he's like, oh, my gosh, this morning. He's like, I wish I would have known. I, I worked up north, and he sent me all these videos of, of them. So what, what you do is they will take the maple sap out of the maple tree. They'll come, and they'll put it in one of these one of these cans like this. They're going to have the maple sap, and, and they're going to squeeze that sap in here. And, and this is an, an arduous process. They're going to take the sap, and they boil it, and they boil it, and they boil it. And, they, and when you boil the sap, what you're going to get out of it eventually is the maple syrup. Now, the, the issue is, 
It doesn't start off being like this. It starts off being something else. And so when you boil it, a lot of times you'll start to boil it. And, you'll, and, and what someone told me recently was that it takes about 40 pounds of sap to get boiled down to get about 10 pounds of syrup. Now, I don't know if anyone else likes this stuff, but to, like, to me, listen, this sound right here. When, when, when I take this sap, there is nothing... There is nothing like a hot pancake with melted butter and 100%, I don't mean like Winn-Dixie 199 high fructose corn syrup, whatever that stuff is. I'm talking when this is mixed with salted butter melting on a pancake. God is good. This is one of my favorite flavors in the world. Now, now Mike, what, what are you trying to say? What I'm saying is sometimes they'll actually get to the point where the 40 pounds has become 20 pounds. And the problem is it's actually not maple syrup yet. It's still maple sap rip. It's going to take more boiling and boiling and boiling and boiling and boiling. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah gets some sap from heaven. But it's going to be months later before he's ready because he's going to have to take that sap and boil it and boil it and boil it and boil it and boil it. Right now, my concern for us is that in a world that says, raise your voice, raise awareness, raise your social media influence, raise your whatever. At some, what all I'm trying to say is this. I am hearing multitudes of people shouting and screaming the problems, and I agree, and shouting and calling for demolition, and I agree. But at some point... Is there any Joanna Gaines that's going to rise up and say, and here are the blueprints. This is how change can be made. That requires leadership. And right now, we need leadership. In the city of Gainesville, we need leadership. In Florida, we need leadership. In Washington, D.C., we need leadership. I am not detecting a spirit of leadership on our culture, but I am asking God, Lord, give it to us in the church. Boil and boil. And Nehemiah, you see a problem? Great. That doesn't mean you're ready yet. That doesn't mean you should go public yet. That doesn't mean you're ready to be posting a blog. That doesn't mean your podcast isn't ready until your podcast has been boiled and boiled. I'm watching people publish. I'm watching. Don't get me wrong, man. I'm, all, I'm down with like, yeah, go, go get some stuff out there. Put some stuff out. What I'm saying is, Nehemiah, stop being surprised when the king doesn't bite. When you didn't give him syrup, you gave him sap. Leaders... Boil and boil and boil until they get it. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the I Have a Dream speech of, of Martin Luther King. I mean, as a preacher, one of my favorite books, it's just a book that's all about his, his sermon at the Lincoln Memorial. And, and one of the questions has been, well, how did, how did he, how, where did he get that? Like, the most famous sermon in all of American history how did that guy do that? And, and one of the things that was fascinating when I was reading it again this week, King had been fascinated with language ever since he was a kid. In fact, he said to his mom one time, he said, Mom, you just wait and see. I'm going to get me some big words one day. When he was a little kid, he started working on words. He started boiling words. He started boiling and boiling and boiling. In his 
um, graduate school notebooks, he would conduct experiments with word crafting. He would write things like, we are experiencing cold and whistling winds of despair in a world packed with turbulence. He would like try out words and scratch things out. At one point he said, while Russia is poisoning the physical atmosphere with megaton bombs, America is still poisoning the moral atmosphere with racial discrimination. And he, he would come up with these lines and parallelism and he would work it, he would work it, he would work it, he would boil it, he would boil it. I think sometimes people are like, man, he just got up and man, he just got up and kind of winged it. No, no, apparently the, and that's what we find in this book is the I Have a Dream speech wasn't written the night before. It wasn't written the month before. He'd been writing this speech for decades. Where'd the phrase I Have a Dream come from? And there's, they've tried to figure out the possibilities on this. Some of the civil rights workers were in meetings with him, one of which was in Albany, Georgia, 1961-62. And there were stories that explain where it could have come from. One of them said um, they were in a, there was a lady named Prathea Hall. She was a young civil rights worker who said several times in a prayer service, Lord, I have a dream that. Lord, I have a dream. And she was in a prayer service on September 14th, 1962 at the the remains of the Mount Olive Baptist Church in Sasser, Georgia, after it had been burned to the ground by segregationists. She prayed, Lord, I have a dream. There was another woman that prayed. There was a college-age young lady that prayed with the phrase, Lord, I have a dream during a mass meeting in a small crowd of church in Albany, Georgia. I find it fascinating, and I find it very um, thrilled, thrilling, to be honest with you, uh, to me, that perhaps even the phrase that we most remember, I have a dream, Maybe it didn't even just come from him. It actually was birthed in prayer. What a thought. The things that are birthed in prayer end in glory. <laughs> I find it wild to me that, that when, when Dr. King was, was pulling the stuff, that he, he boiled it and boiled it and boiled it and boiled it. He, he worked it and worked it and worked it and worked it until it became, on the Lincoln Memorial, the most memorable lines in American history where people know those lines better than they know the words of the Bible, better than they know the words of the Constitution, better than they know the words of just about anything else. What was that? This was clear leader. I, the problem is inequality. The problem is lack of reconciliation. The problem is division. I've got a dream that one day my kids and their kids are gonna come together and, and they're, gonna, they're gonna get together and be one. See, see, if you're a leader, you got to get clear about the problem, number one. you got to get clear about the solution. You've got, there's got to be a, there's got to be a solution that's coming. You're in the shark tank, you're before the king, and when he brings it to you, what are you going to say? We had a man came to our church several years ago, and I saw him after a service. He was just off to the side, and there was tears coming down his cheek, and I went up to introduce myself. Hey, I'm Pastor Mike, and just looked at me. He said, I, I've waited 25 years for this. I said, what? He said, the, the, the reason I left the church 25 years ago is there's, the, there's this claim that we've got, there's a God that Jesus, through Jesus, there's reconciliation between God and man. Between, I mean, you've got an infinite God and finite people, and there's this great divide, and, and that God can, rec- or, you know, Christ reconciles sinners to God. He's like, come on, man. You got white people, black people, Spanish people, uh, you know, Asian people. You got these, we can't even get finite people that are this far apart, can't even get, the gospel doesn't seem to work for them. The most segregated time of the week is still Sunday mornings. It's still Sundays. Churches can't unite and, and, and the ethnicities can't come together. And I said, you know what? I'm just so tired of a gospel that claims reconciliation that doesn't happen. I haven't been to church in 25 years. And he said, but I came today because I heard there were different races that 
come together in this church. And I looked over there, and, and he's just pointing, and there's a circle of men gathered together. There's like a white guy. There's a black guy. There's a Hispanic guy. They're just like pounding it. They're just kind of there, and, and, and they're, they're in a microchurch together. And then you saw some people over here, and, and, you, and you saw these, these different races. And, and he said, what is this? I said, well, man, it's part of our vision. I mean, our vision is we, we, we want to have, I mean, the, the goal is not diversity. The goal is reconciliation. But if you get reconciliation, you'll end up with diversity. I mean, we, we, we kind of want, we feel like God's church is supposed to be like a, a zebra. You don't know if it's a, a white horse with black stripes or a black horse with white stripes. Like, man, what is it? Well, that's a zebra. You know, you're not sure if it, the diversity of, of ages or ethnicities or, or nationalities, we feel like the gospel of Jesus does what nothing else can do. He says, I've waited my whole life to be a part of something like that. Friends, do you understand that the world that we're living in is tired of looking at the church and God knows the evangelical, fundamental, Pentecostal, charismatic, progressive, you put ever whatever label on the church that you want to put has been such a poor example when the world says, you guys claim that the blood of Jesus reconciles sinners to God when it can't even reconcile Hispanics to Asians? Do you, do, you, do you see the cognitive dissonance in that argument? Do you, do you see, hey, we're telling you, God can, God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible, and he can't even get, and, and right now, and we see that even in our culture now, and we have this the, with the vision that Nehemiah says. I have, Nehemiah says, king, I have a dream. See, the vision, when it's clear enough, it's so compelling that Martin Luther King gets on television, and the president of the United States is watching him, and he's like, man, he's like, dang. I believe in what that guy's saying. Friends, you've got the right vision when you've got a vision that your name is Nehemiah and you're a Jew and you're making a pitch in the shark tank to King Artaxerxes who has no vested interest in the Jews, who has no vested interest in Jerusalem, who has no reason to go do that for his own reasons, and yet somehow he's casting a vision so clear and so compelling that the king looks at his wife, and by the way, it's interesting to me, it says that the king, he was sitting there with his wife, it's kind of an interesting thing to me in verse 6, and the king said to me, the queen was sitting beside him, let you know, the brother's smart. Nehemiah's got some emotional intelligence. Apparently, he's waited four months for some reason, and one of the reasons might have been, we got the detail here, apparently the king was in a better mood when his woman was with him. Some of us, we blow our chances because we ask at the wrong time. We may have great intellectual abilities and very low emotional intelligence. Sometimes you need an emotional intelligence that can go with your IQ. And he goes and he makes the ask. And this guy who's got nothing in it for himself, he still finds it's so clear and so compelling that the king says, yeah, here is my question. Are you clear about the problem? Question two, are you clear about the solution? Is your solution so clear that other people that don't even get whatever you're talking about, they're like, man, I get it, man. When they're, man, I get, is it so compelling that even people of other genders, even people of other persuasions, even people of other theological backgrounds, even people of other ethnicities, would they say, yeah, because what I'm watching right now is a lot of would-be Nehemiahs offering people sap. They're never buying their sap, and they're like, well, you know how people are. They just will never change, but is the problem actually, Nehemiah, that you got to do your homework. you got to go boil some sap because maybe people aren't willing to buy your sap, but if you'll do your work like Martin Luther King, if you'll do your work like Nehemiah, maybe they'll actually go buy your syrup. We need leaders right now, man. There are problems to it. There are problems, but we got a God. 
who gives people vision. And the scripture says, without a vision, the people perish. Get clear about the problem. Get clear about the solution. And number three, get clear about the plan. When the king said, well, well what, what's the plan here? He, he, the king said to me, he, how long will you be gone? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Everyone say time. I want you to notice it's time sensitive. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors in the province beyond the river that they may let me pass by until I come to Judah. Let a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted me what I asked because the good hand of my God was upon me. In other words, he didn't just give him a clear problem. The walls are messed up. He didn't just give him a clear solution. Let me go rebuild the walls and fortify the city. He actually gave him a plan. When the king said, what are you requesting? He didn't say, I don't know. I just came to speak truth to power. Listen, man, speak truth. I was on the, I was on the, uh, the phone with the, the chief of police this week. I, I'm on a committee with other pastors where, like, like we're trying to address policing in our city. Like, well, I take this very seriously, but here's the catch. When you stand before the king, like everyone talking so much about let's go speak truth to power, when you come to the power, come with a plan. Come with a vision. Come with some clarity. Come with your syrup. Man, I threw that sap at those leaders, and man, they didn't do jack because you didn't do your work. Take your sap and turn it into syrup, and you just might go change the world. You just might go build your walls. We just might be to be able to address oppression. We just might be able to address homelessness, fatherlessness, uh, marriage problems. If only we could get to the syrup. But, but don't be surprised when people don't want to smear sap on their pancakes. They're waiting for some leaders that give them syrup. I'm not trying to be rudimentary and elementary here. I'm trying to tell you, if you will bring your problem to God and boil it. And then you will bring your vision to God and boil it, boil it, boil it. And then you will come and bring your plan and boil it. What does Weight Watchers address? Weight. What does Dave Ramsey address? Debt. Okay, so what's the vision for Weight Watchers? The vision is, girl, you're about to go to that wedding. You give us 90 days. You're going to like what you see when you look in the mirror. And you're like, ooh. Then it, but watch, Weight Watchers has a plan. They say, you sign up with us, we're gonna, you're going to go in the right direction. What's their plan? It goes like this. We're going to give you a list of these things that you can eat and that you cannot eat. Before you go and eat, we've got, a little, you've got an app that tells you how many points each food has. You, the, the pizza, you see some deep dish pizza. They're like, you can have one-fourth of a slice because it's 97 points. But good news, you can eat like 400 carrots. That's only two points, you know. And so, so they've got that. But then here's the big one. We're going to have a weekly meeting. And the plan is, you're going to show up at this weekly meeting. And guess what you're going to stand on at the weekly meeting? A scale. And everyone else is going to get around you. There's accountability. And then you're going to get there, and you're going to look down. And everyone else is going to look down. And when Billy Bob, he's like, looking down, and they're like, Billy Bob, you lost a half a pound. Woo! 97 to go. You know, and there's this... Watch, Weight Watchers, they're not just saying, hey, man, sign up with us, pay us money every single month, and you know what we're going to do? We'll keep on giving you some sap. Or, man, ah, wait. At some point, you got to do something other than just watching and reading social media about the weight problems. Weight Watchers says, let us get our hands on you, and we got a plan. 
Dave Ramsey's got a plan. Debt is dumb, that's the problem. Financial freedom, that's the vision. In fact, he's got a show that people call in and people drive from all over America to go to his thing. I think it's in Atlanta or Tennessee or somewhere and they go there and when they've gotten debt free, they get there, they're like, how much debt did you have? I had $377,000. And how much did it, how long did it take you? It took me three years, but we paid it off and I am free. They're like, woo, and, and they will literally plan vacations to go for the vision, a clear vision of the freedom of being debt-free. But watch, it doesn't happen just with vision. It happens with a plan. You join Dave Ramsey, you get our hands on you, step one, put $1,000 in an emergency fund. Step two, you know, blah, blah, blah. Step three, they've got seven steps to make, get you to financial freedom. And they've got these, in other words, they say, I've got a, I don't just have a dream, I also have a plan Boil it, hey Nehemiah, boil it, boil it, boil it, give me a plan. If you're watching right now and maybe you're a mom and you're like, man, my family, there's so much strife in my home, drives me nuts. We come home, dad's fighting with mom and the cat's fighting with a dog and the daughter's fighting with the son and, and grandma's fighting with everybody and, and they're all, and she's like, I'm tired of this. Lord, have mercy. They're fighting on their phones. They fight at dinner. They fight everywhere, right? She's like, I'm, the, pro, the problem is strife. Okay, good, we're clear about the problem. What's the vision? Like in the Pat's home, our vision is peace and joy. I want to live in a house where there's peace and joy. The world is crazy. I want to go home and there's peace. That's just me. But I don't just want peace. I also want fun. I want joy. So in our house, we want peace and joy. But let's say the mom says, the vision is peace and joy. But then she might say, well, what's the plan? Well, maybe she just read the book I just read, for example, that said a lot of times your joy levels go down when there's a lot of clutter in your house. So one of the like, very proven things is if you're cluttered, if you've got too many clothes, if you have too much furniture, if everyone's too on top of each other, it robs the joy. So maybe she says, here's the plan. Next three weeks, we're doing yard sales, getting rid of stuff. Every, all the kids have to take, give half their clothes away. We're going to get rid of some more clutter. We're going to do this kind of stuff, and we're going to start reading the Bible once a week. And now there's a plan in place to go and build. Number one, get clear about the problem. Number two, get clear about the solution. And number three, what is your plan? Because when you get those things in place, the next thing you know, you're going to have some syrup. And the next thing you know, people you never thought it was possible are going to start putting this on the pancakes called their life. And then we get to go out into a world that is loaded with depression and oppression and suppression and confusion. And now we can start to change the world. Mike, what, what do you want me to do with this sermon? I, it, it's simply this. I, I want you to go boil it down. I, I want you to boil the sap of the burdens of your heart. I want you to boil it and boil it and boil it. If you're leading a ministry, Alex, boil it. What is the problem that your ministry is going to boil it? What is the solution? Boil it until it's clear. Boil it to the point that someone, like, Michael, what's the, well, how have you boiled things in greenhouse? Well, it's like this. The, the burden of greenhouse is Christianity that's devoid of discipleship. The vision for Greenhouse is that we would have a, a church full of disciples of Jesus, passionate followers of Jesus, not just people that come and sit on pews, but disciples of Jesus. And then we have a plan that's in place. What, what is the boiling that you need to do? Maybe you need to take that QR code that's on those cards that we gave you, and, and we would love to help you with this. It's on the screen, I believe. If you're watching this on video later, you can click on that QR code. We will help you with your burden. We will help you with all of these, but I want you to go into boil it. But let me end it like this. <laughs> Nehemiah was a great leader, but at the end of the day, if you read the end of the book of Nehemiah, you're going to find that the walls do get built up, but the downside of this world is that the walls always eventually come down again. 
Because if the walls that you're addressing are on the outside, the outside is never going to be enough. Several years ago, I met the greatest leader I've ever known by far. He changed my life when I saw the problem, and he showed me the solution, and he gave a plan. 2,000 years ago, he went up to a man whose name was Simon, and he said to him, Simon, you, you are this one thing. You are Simon. That's, it's on, by the way, he's very honest. This leader is very honest. You are Simon, but if you follow me, you're going to become Peter. Because the greatest Joanna Gaines there ever was, was Jesus Christ, who would look at shells of a life, and he could see things in them that no one else saw. And he believed things about Simon that Simon didn't even imagine. And he says, Simon, if you follow me, like, it, it's the same shell. You're going to look the same on the outside. It's the same address. It's the same zip code. It's the same physical DNA. But if you let me get my hands on you, you are this, but you will become the kind of thing that your name itself will be changed. Like, you're going to go from one thing. You, you follow me. I will make you to become a fisher of men. And he's been doing it for 2,000 years now that when Jesus gets a hold of people, he, he says, if, if, you let, if you let me get my hand, I'm going to be honest about the problem. It is called sin. It jacks everything up. It kills. The wages of sin is death. But if you let me get my hands on you, if you let me, I, I will put blueprints and I will give you a vision that you will become my daughter and you will become my son and you will become different. Like at the elemental level, like it's like a new nature itself. It's like my little girl, Anaya, my youngest, she came to my wife a little while back and she said, Mommy, I don't like myself. And I butted in. I'm like, whoa, baby girl, what do you mean you don't like yourself? I said, do you know that you're pretty? She says, oh, I know I'm pretty. <laughs> I said, girl, do you know that you're smart? She said, oh, no, I know I'm smart. I'm just bad. I'm a bad little girl. And my wife jumped up. She said, oh, baby, you may be bad, but I've got good news for you. The Bible says we're all bad, but we're also loved. And his love is bigger than our badness. And when his love comes on the inside of you, he builds you into something new, if you'll just believe him. Anaya, bad girls, become the daughters of Jesus. And we started to talk to her about water baptism and following Jesus. And, 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 and what Jesus does is he doesn't act like our badness isn't real. But we got to step back and like his love is not real. And when his love confronts our badness, his love wins every time. <laughs> when Joanna Gaines brings blueprints... She's got a track record of house after house after house after house that's been changed. And when Jesus Christ comes to a heart, he has a track record that life after life after life after life gets transformed forever. If you've not yet been changed, let the ultimate Nehemiah rock your world.